Hi, everybody, and welcome to Martin Van Dyke Undercovers, produced in partnership with the Ann Arbor District Library. My interview this month is with Jonathan Leatham and Kevin Detmar. They are the editors of a new book published by Library of America entitled Shake It Up, Great American Writing on Rock and Pop from Elvis to Jay-Z. Rock music changed America, of course, and the generation of writers that grew up with it embraced the spirit of that change, pioneering new attitudes and styles that mirrored the music's freedom and rebellious energy. They created a body of writing that is a heady mix of high culture, pop culture, roots culture, poetic exploration, and just plain obsessive enthusiasm. Shake It Up is a mixtape of 50 of the most outspoken and distinctly personal voices from a half-century tradition of revolutionary and often joyous defiance. Jonathan Lethem is the author of The Fortress of Solitude and nine other novels. Kevin Detmar is the author of Is Rock Dead and editor of the Cambridge Companion to Bob Dylan. I began my interview by asking Jonathan Lethem how he and Kevin got involved with editing this incredible book, Shake It Up. It has a very definite origin story, which is that um, when I... Uh, joined the team here at the English department at Pomona College, and uh, Kevin, you know, he and I had already worked together once in that he'd roped me in to write a chapter of the um, Cambridge Companion to Bob Dylan, uh, and he knew that I was um, the right man to handle the the, um, the abhorrent 80s, which, you know, everyone, <laughs> no one wants to touch in Dylanology, but I, but I have a special fondness for it. So I wrote a chapter of, of, of the Oxford... Uh, uh, or the Cambridge, Cambridge um, uh, introduction to Bob Dylan, which is a kind of you know, if you think of it as like a dry run for the um, uh, uh, fusty uh, canonization of, of uh, rock and roll, right? And, sure. Um, and and Kevin and I were becoming friends as well as colleagues, and he was teaching a course on rock writing here and uh, raised the the. Um, question for me of whether there was an anthology that I that I knew of that he hadn't seen that, that you know, uh, covered some of the, the great um, rock writing that he, you know, wanted to assign to the students, and that he, he suspected there wasn't, and, you know, that there should be, that the, the, the most recent version was something done by uh, Clinton Halen in the, I guess, in the late 80s or very early 90s, and then a lot of a lot of writing had come along since then that was important. And, and that was a, a Penguin anthology, and it was a little bit geared towards the British writers. Yeah. Uh, Clinton Halen himself is, is from the U.K. And so, you know, Kevin kind of threw it at me. He said, what if we, would you be interested in, in trying to put together a, a, an anthology? And shortly after that thought, you know, was sort of percolating in my head, um, I, you know, I'd already been working with the Library of America on various things, and so I threw back to Kevin. I said, "Well, I have this, you know, great anthology of uh, Philip Lopate edited this great anthology for Library of America of American film criticism, and maybe this is the model, and maybe the Library of America themselves would be interested. And I know those guys, so we can we could we could try them. And I, you know, correct, Kevin, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we never went to another." Thought we basically got yeah. it in front of them, and that and that began the conversation. That's right. 
Oh, I love it. I love it. And, Kevin, the, the book starts with the, the great Nat Hentoff, and I guess I'd forgotten, shame on me, that, that these are actually the liner notes from the freewheeling Bob Dylan. Is that right? Yeah, it is right. I think uh, in thinking about the various ways you could put a book like this together, one of the things we were hoping to do was to uh, to include different genres of writing in the liner note. <laughs> so, I mean, the uh, I believe, yeah, Anthony de Curtis's entry on is the liner notes, or an extended version of the liner notes that he wrote for some girls when that was reissued some years ago. So, yeah, that's a that's a not ephemera exactly, but it doesn't uh, it doesn't get preserved and sort of uh, memorialized in the way that some other writing does, and we wanted to make sure to capture some of that. And, Kevin, how how did you split up the work with Jonathan as far as what ended up in the book? We've we've got a total of of 50 essays or liner notes or pieces from 50 different authors. How did did the editing process go? Did you each come up separately with your your, your preferred 50 and kind of edit it down from there, Kevin? Yeah, I would say um, I'd be interested to hear how Jonathan describes it. The... The first thing to say is that there were really three editors, and Jeffrey O'Brien at the Library of America, the editor with whom we worked there, was not a hands-off editor. <laughs> he has a piece in the anthology, a great piece on the Beatles that was in the New York Review of Books. Yeah. Um, and because he's in that world and has very uh, pronounced tastes in the writing and knows a lot of the writers that I didn't know, I did, maybe some that Jonathan didn't know as well, he became a really important third um, voice. So, so the editorial conversation and the push and pull um, was between the three of us over a long period. Um, what, what Jeffrey did first, I think, when, when we had pitched him kind of generally on the idea of the book was to say, why don't you come up with a list of 30 pieces that you couldn't live without, sort of, uh, you know, the solid core of the table of contents. And I remember Jonathan and I just sitting down, I don't know if it was lunch or coffee, or just sitting in somebody's office, sort of, you know, it was really easy to get at least 20 or 25 of those because, um, yeah, some of them just seemed so obvious. Um, yeah, so the, uh, the, there was a skeletal table of contents, those 30, and then uh, pushing it to be more inclusive in various ways, as I said before, inclusive of different genres, genres of writing to make sure that the different kind of decades and different scenes were covered, that we had writers of color and women writers because it could very easily, especially in the early days, be just a, a you know white guy's uh, table of contents. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, there's some quite a few pieces I'm familiar with, and many that I wasn't at all. And gosh, it's a big sticks, Bolt fan, Stanley Booth's piece uh, yeah. in the studio with Otis Redding just completely blew yeah. my mind. I'd never yeah. read that before. Oh, great, um, yeah, it's a stunner. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So tell us more about that one, Jonathan. Well, you know. Um, Oh, about the booth in particular? I mean, yes. there's a, there are certain pieces that you, you know, you read them and you don't need to know more. You're essentially just locked into a, a you know, fan position. And the question is just, uh, yeah. can we get it in the book? Um, and I mean, I read Booth on, on the Rolling Stones, and that's yeah. the, the, the act with which he's most associated because he became, I think, uh, Keith Richards even joked at some point that he became their, you know, their, uh, their captive writer or their pet writer. Yeah. And he was on tour with them, and I think it kind of wrecked Stanley Booth's life, but he got a great book out of it. Um, 
and so I didn't really know more about him than that. And I, if, I, if I'd been asked at the beginning, I would have thought, oh, of course it'll be Stanley Booth on the Stones, and that we would excerpt uh, his, you know, his, his, mm-hmm. his um, book about them. But then this other thing, you know, the, the, the really important you know, thing I, is, I, bet it, I bet it came from Jeffrey, too. It may, have, it may, may well have done. But, we, you know, we did have presuppositions. Both Kevin and I were huge fans of this kind of writing, and I thought I, you know, I have a giant shelf of, you know, my favorites. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a collector, and so I was staring at stuff, and I thought, oh, I'll just pull all the good stuff off my shelf. But in fact, there's so much more to know. And, you know, declaring yourself the editor in a field as, as deep as this and rich as this was to become immediately humbled. And so we were, you know, we spent a long time in the, happily in the woods reading things we'd never heard of. And so the contents page is as much a, a record of our discoveries and a kind of a, a, a really lovely, slow motion conversation about uh, what other kinds of things were going on that we'd never known about. And, you know, Jeffrey was very important in provoking us and saying, well, what about these people? You haven't, you know, you haven't even looked at uh, these writers, and we, then we would. And, um, you know, uh, so we didn't, we didn't absolutely, you know, we had some, we had some strong leanings, but we didn't, we could never have projected the, the result from the point at which we began. It's got to be such a part of the, the blast of being an editor of a book like this, is that sense of discovery. And another example is the, the piece from Peter Gromek, who's done so much great writing, but gosh, off the top of my head, I would think, oh, well, you've got to put in something from his, one of his books on Elvis Presley, of course, he's best yeah. known for that, but... That's not what's in the book. Kevin, talk, talk about uh, the Peter Goralnik piece and what led you to uh, include his writing about uh, Solomon Burke. I'm, uh, boy, I don't remember how we landed on that. <laughs> I do remember going back through the two volumes, the uh, Elvis volumes, and trying to find something that was really um, sort of short enough and self-contained and not being satisfied. Was it, was it your idea, uh, John? I've, I've been a fan of Goralnik's early books. There's compositions yeah. of portraits of... Um, Southern uh, R&B musicians for a long time. I mean, actually, Goralnik would be an example of someone who I, you know, came in strong on. I've always, I've always read him. I've always loved him, uh, and um, and I was probably actually leaning towards, you know, away from either the Elvis or the Sam Cooke biographies, which are so. They're so extensive. They're such mammoth yeah. projects that I think yeah. just yeah. taking a little sequence from one of them would probably be very unsatisfying. But I knew that there was a, this other mode he'd been in where he'd write these kind of brilliant pocket uh, biographies, basically, you know, uh, at whatever that is, you know, three or four thousand words give you everything. I mean, he he even did James Brown in that mode, and that's a you know that's a huge career, and obviously a writer, uh, excuse me, a musician who who justifies not just one but uh, you know, several major biographies. But yeah. one of the best things ever written on James Brown is Goralnik's, uh, you know, treating him in a way just as a as a contemporary, you know, not as this towering, unprecedented figure, but as a guy working alongside Joe Tex and, and, and you know, Solomon Burke as just, you know, one of the rivals. Um, and so I was, I was uh, very keen on getting one of those early Goralnik pieces in the book. Mm. And again, you, you touched both. You touched upon this earlier. Yeah, could have, the book could have been all filled up with uh, white white guy writing through, throughout for, for reasons that we we un, we all understand. And unfortunately, but uh, the, the pieces you do have by by women are some of the 
again, most compelling in the book, E. Babbitt's on, on the Doors, which was, I, I've not read that, that, uh, article before, and, and Ellen Sanders, uh, incredible and uh, very disturbing yeah. profile of, um, Led Zeppelin. Uh, yeah. Kevin, you want to talk about those too? Um, boy, what to say? The Ellen Sanders, that's something that was new to me, uh, yeah. and pretty disturbing. I think, both of us. Right, and I think part of what it, hap- as unhappy as it is, part of what it happily does, just for the balance and structure of the book, is, well, there's another piece for, for uh, by, by a woman's voice that folks might not know, and you can introduce it into the conversation, but it also, in what it discusses, gives you an idea of why there are more women's voices, how, how subject to um, harassment those women were. I've, I've got the table of contents open, and on the facing page is Gina Arnold. I mean, um, there were, uh, oh gosh, what was it? There were, there were t-shirts in the Bay Area about killing Gina Arnold back in the day because she wasn't reverential enough to the, to the sort of male favorite bands that she was writing about. I mean, uh, it was pretty ugly. So. It, right. And, and it's, it's very ironic. Just, yeah, go ahead, please. Oh, I was just going to say, it's, it's ironic because we associate you know, rock culture with the the revolutionary uh, consciousness raising counterculture, but I think the fate of the you know first first women to try to cover that scene, especially you know uh, up close and personal, might not have been so different from the, you know the experience of like the first women sports writers to enter a locker room. I think it was just brutal. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so much of it. I'm just rereading all of um, all of Lillian, Lillian Roxon's writing for a, another project. But how much they, they're compelled to write about groupies, sort of, in part to explain that they are not groupies. That you know their interest in the band is is different. Um, but they, I think, that tag is just waiting for them all the time. Mm. Growing up in uh, Detroit, of course. Uh, growing up at Cream Magazine, uh, you know. But mm. Lester Bangs is writing. I'm so very familiar with, and I'm, and I'm delighted. And I mean, I, if this book had come out without something from Lester Bangs, well, you would have heard from me, gentlemen, because he's, he's just an essential rock writer for people who just may be discovering Lester Bangs in this book. Uh, talk, talk about Lester and the piece that you include uh, in, in the book. Jonathan, you want to take that? Yeah, well, he, he's a he's a uh, important writer for me, a signal writer. Uh, you know, when uh, he, he's an interesting case because he, in some ways, thanks to uh, Griel Marcus's efforts, yeah. and you know, you might you might argue in some ways, thanks, ironically, to his early death, he did get kind of canonized. You know, there's this in the uh, uh, I guess it's the very late '80s or very early '90s. There's a big volume from Knopf a publisher we don't at that point associate with, you know, rock and roll, called yeah, really. Psychotic Reactions of Carburetor Dung, where Green yeah. Marcus lovingly, painstakingly, makes the argument that Lester Banks was some kind of great American writer. And it's, you know, it was a galvanizing book for me to encounter at the time. And, in fact, the, the piece we used, you know, at the risk of, of overexposing the same, you know, key pieces, I couldn't get away from the Elvis Presley uh uh, you know, kind of epitaph that he wrote for the Village Voice, which was a, 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 a core piece in, in the Grill Marcus collection. And so Marcus, in a way, showed us, you know, or showed me anyway, that no argument was going to be an overstatement. That if you if you put this kind of writing, the best of it, in the right frame, that mm-hmm. it stood up, and it stood up as you know, um, as 
as much as uh, critical writing or, in a sense, uh, you know, personal nonfiction, memoir, uh, personal essays. Uh, you know, it was it was it was the real thing, and so. Um, you know, this is part of the path that led me to be someone who would look for other writing in this mode and end up, write, you know, uh, ed- editing the book. Mm. I think part of what's great about uh, about that particular, I, I'm I'm sort of a bangs, uh, I don't know, agnostic. He he really gets under my skin, but that's part of the power of his writing, I guess, is that he can get under your skin. But part of what's um, I think distinctive about this piece is that it starts off sort of class, classic Lester, and then it, I'm just trying to flip to the ending very quickly. Oh, yeah, um, I can guarantee you one thing. We will never again agree on anything as we agreed on Elvis, so I won't bother saying goodbye to his corpse. I will say goodbye to you. That, that gives me chills, I mean, yeah. in a way that his writing doesn't often do. It's sort of a beautiful, uh, it just turns the essay on the reader all of a sudden at the end there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, there are certain music critics, music journalists, and it's the same with um, film critics. There, there's uh, locally and nationally. There's some whose writing I, I, I complete every opinion they have. I almost I'm diametrically opposed to what, <laughs> what they write. And I know that okay, that's that's cool because if, if that critic likes that yeah. film, like don't go to it, Martin, because it's going to suck. You're going to hate it. And right. conversely, uh, they you know vice versa. And my music guy is Chuck Eddy. And, but I'm so glad he's in your book. But this, it, it, I, I, and you even asked, is this a joke? About, he really thinks Poison is better than the Beatles? What, what, what's this, this guy? Because his, his writing just would literally, I, I, what would it usually be about the Village Voice, which I haven't read in a while, I would just rip the paper up going, this guy is so fucking full of shit. But I guess, but at least he made an impression on me. Tell me your thoughts about Chuck Eddy. This, this, it, it's very, shall we say, I'll try to be neutral, interesting that he ended up in your book. <laughs> well, you know, there's a, uh, a thread uh, in, the, in the history. I mean, you know, the, the, the trick with writing about something um, that's, that is fundamentally um, provocative and... Um, plays with the idea of disposability or of kind of, you know, termite art. Uh, yes. That it's, it's coming from the floorboards, it's meant to overturn convention and shake you up and uh, be rough around the edges, is that it's constantly, you know, from the moment, uh, let's say, Elvis puts on a turtleneck and croons in the manner of Perry Como, and certainly, you know, when the Beatles start dressing things up in, you know, with with classical strings and uh, you know, making these studio masterpieces instead of playing in a German, you know, beer cellar. There's always this anxiety that something's getting gentrified. And so you have a series of writers, and Chuck Eddy is preeminent among them, who are the conscience of the underground, basically saying, you know, stop, stop trying to stuff it in a museum. It, it actually only works when it's um, raw and provocative and uncomfortable. And so, you know, it, it sounds like, the effect he's had on you is precisely the one he should have. <laughs> right. <laughs> Shake up your conventions and challenge, challenge what I think about things. No, it's so true. I'm so glad as well that you include uh, an essay, a piece by Nick Koshis, who is one of my absolute favorite writers of all time, music writers of all time, and whose book about Dean Martin is mm. arguably the best book written about a musician 
ever. Uh, and uh, tell, tell me your thoughts, both of you, about he's, uh, he's about phenomenal. Yeah, oh, he's phenomenal. Oh. And that the Jerry Lee Lewis biography is, uh, you know, I care more about Jerry Lee Lewis than Dean Martin. So I guess I'm, yeah, I, I lean to that one. He he is the most novelistic. Uh, yeah. biographer. And, of course, it makes sense that he ultimately <laughs> spent a tremendous amount of his, his you know, l- latter part of his career writing novels, and he should. He's a really brilliant novelist as yeah. well. His appetite for, uh, you know, kind of the underworld atmosphere and the place where he sees the counterculture intersecting with, um, you know, kind of other kind of, uh, what would you say, fugitive histories, criminal histories. He, he's He's just... He's a really, really essential writer. And, um, uh, you know, we could wish that we had more Niktashis on music, except that the novels themselves are really great, too. Well, I was going to say that the problem of anthologizing him is this, similar to the, the problem of anthologizing Griel Marcus, which is that any place that you stop and, and do a, you know, a slice down is not representative. What would it mean to have a representative Griel Marcus or Niktashis piece there? Because their interests are so Catholic and they they write about such a wide range of things, there's the worry, at least, that somebody, you know, Greel, especially, he's the last entry in the book, even though he starts writing for Rolling Stone in 66, 60, well, 67 for Rolling Stone, but he's been writing about rock for 50 years, but he's the last entry because it's about Christian Markley. Um, that's not representative, but it's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, when is volume... When does volume two come out, guys? I love this so much. <laughs> I think it's in your hands. If someone else has to take up the take up the torch now. <laughs> what, right. what are for each of you? What are your next projects? Can you tell us what you're working on, Kevin? You first. Um, I'm working actually on a book that's almost like the narrative history that would accompany this. I'm writing a book about the first two decades of rock writing in the U.S. So I'm actually finishing a chapter about Lillian Roxon right now. Mm. Um, yeah, so like 64 to 84. That and Kevin, you should also say that you've begun recently, you're part of the, what is it, a four-headed editorial oh, yeah. consortium that uh, chooses and, and manages the 33 and a third uh, oh. series? That's true, yeah. So, oh, wow. Along with um, Daphne Brooks, Amanda Petrusich, and Gail Wald, the four of us now edit the 33 and a third series. So definitely oh, pitches to me. Oh, cool. Oh, Just about yeah. the best development in, in the entire history of rock writing, I think, is, is that series. I mean, it's just oh, it's yeah. made so many incredible opportunities for people. And, um, you know, just as long-form journalism and flick magazines has shrunken away to such a great extent. I would say, too, just uh, quickly, one of the cutting room floor moments was I think we got to 51 pieces, and the one was Carl Wilson, who is not an American. Canadian. <laughs> uh, we, were, we were quietly disguising that fact, hoping to smuggle him in, but when we were one over, we realized something had to go. We had to cut the Canuck. But his 33 and a third book on Celine Dion is sort of a, a miraculous a miraculous thing. Mm. Um, how about you, Jonathan? What do you want? Oh, no, you know, I'm just reverting to form, writing another novel. Uh, <laughs> and, reverting uh, to form. Yeah. Oh, that's all. It's what I do uh, when I can't, can't think of anything else. Oh man. Okay. All right. Without thinking, um, what, what's your what's your favorite Detroit music act of all time? Just just off the top of your head, what what artists do you listen to the most from 
Detroit, Ann Arbor, any, any genre, Kevin? Well, I, you know, I, I, I was going to say, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Stooges guy. Yeah. But I will, uh, since that's so obvious and we both picked it, the, the, the first version of uh, Bob Seger's uh, band, the, you know, the, 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 the music Bob he was Seger. making before he was uh, famous. Oh, right, Bob Seger's when he, system stuff, the early stuff. Yeah, exactly. When, when he was, really was a, a local act, uh, some of that stuff is fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Stooges, it's just amazing from, from, I mean, I've been in radio now for about 35 years, and it's just, so, but it, it, they're the first act that, that virtually every person who I've interviewed, and anyone from even close to the rock genre, when I ask the obvious question, you know, who's most influential, who do you like from Detroit? Stooges, Stooges, Stooges. Jack White, Stooges, Stooges. Motown, Stooges. <laughs> it's, it's really... It's really just it's well, so cool. That's, yeah, that's not even fair. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, you know, yeah, yeah. You know, but uh, it's also the case that of the most improbable careers to have uh, duration. I, you know, I was listening to Henry Rollins. Uh, he, he DJs in L.A. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, I mean, maybe that's syndicated. Maybe it's everywhere. And um, he played a new a new Iggy track, and it was really good. And I was just like, wait, this guy is still, you know, not only still alive, still walking the earth, but still uh, making something uh, arresting. It seems, you know, if any if any artist would seem like they would have, yeah. uh, you know, whatever, like, a you know, 18 months of genius and then never be heard from it, it didn't matter because those 18 months changed the world, it would be someone like Iggy Pop and the Stooges. But in fact, he's got good records scattered now over decades, you know. Thank you for listening to Martin Van Dyke Undercovers and our interview with Jonathan Letham and Kevin Detmar, editors of the new book, Shake It Up, Great American Writing on Rock and Pop from Elvis to Jay-Z. This has been a presentation of the Ann Arbor District Library. Remember me to one who lives there. She once was a true love man.